Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. This week, I'm excited to welcome a guest whose work has redefined what it means to be a champion of cinema. As a filmmaker, she's traveled around the world with her acclaimed documentary, Out of Print, a love letter and rallying cry about the importance of independent movie theaters and the culture around them. On the airwaves, she delves into her gorehound passions as one of the hosts of the popular podcast, The Horror Movie Survival Guide. A fierce filmmaker, horror historian, and actor, please welcome to the show, Julia Marchesi. Hi. Hi, Julia. That was quite an intro. I'm sitting here blushing. That was amazing. Well, it's all deserved because you did all those things and so much more. I know. It's just hard sometimes to be like, hey, that's me. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you. Um, you know, before we jump into the episode, like we've known each other for a while. Yeah. We have a bit of a shared history. Mm-hmm. which I want to dig into a little bit later. Uh, but before we even begin with that and all of the you know titans of horror that lurk in our mutual past, um, I might as well just start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror connect with you? Why do you think genre audiences are drawn to it? But mm-hmm. why horror? You know, I've thought a lot about this question because I've been a horror fan for a really long time, and... I wasn't always. There was a period where I didn't like them, and then there was a period where I did. And I so that really like leads me to what what the thing is. And I think the thing is that I think it's the same rush you get from going on a roller coaster, mm-hmm. where it's this thrill, but it's a safe thrill. You're you know you're in a place where you're strapped in and you're fine, and like nothing bad's going to happen. I mean, there's like the one percent, but like nothing bad's going to happen. So you feel a safe rush of fear. And I think that 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 feeling is the very same feeling that a horror movie gives you, that you have this rush of fear, but you're in a place where you're very safe and, and most likely surrounded by a bunch of other people as well. And I think for me, the most amazing thing about horror is watching it in a room full of people. Uh, you know, I went to go see the new it five times in the theater because it's a great film, but also because the people there were, terrified and being in a room full of like 500 people and feeling everybody be scared and then this kind of laughter when they're you know everything's okay and then it goes back up and it's this incredible that's what cinema's for really and I think that nothing more like a horror you either have a horror or a comedy and like you sit and you watch those films with a bunch of people and it's a whole different experience and so I think that feeling of fear is something that is and I know people don't twice I understand why people don't like it I get it like you don't you know that's a feeling you don't enjoy and that's okay but to me it kind of gives me this sense of okay I went through this thing and I survived and I'm okay and like wasn't that fun the same way a roller coaster is fun right and I've actually I've talked a lot of people about it and I found that most people who like horror movies also like roller coasters and oh, like, I don't and vice versa yeah. but like it's like a lot of people who like don't like roller coasters also don't like horror movies I don't know if they correlate right. maybe it's a weird Julia Marquesi theory and you've just broken it so oh no I think it's a good theory but I uh, I think it's because I'm way too type A to enjoy roller coasters okay. I've always said that uh I'm not a big amusement park person and it's not necessarily for fear it's more so I don't like the like not being in control of my environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also get that. I think that you uh, you bring up this idea of controlled fear, which I think is very fascinating mm-hmm. because it speaks to this issue of catharsis that like we often uh, discuss when we think about what draws people to horror. The idea that the world itself is this sort of terrifying, nebulous place where at any moment, 
your your mortality could be challenged. Yeah. And that, when you sit and think about it, can cause an existential crisis. Like it's, it's, it's horrifying. <laughs> so the idea of having like a controlled fear that then you can like invest that kind of existential fear into mm-hmm. so you can let it out. It's sort of like an adrenaline rush. Like it's a build and release. So probably you're not like having meltdowns constantly. And I think even people who don't like horror movies probably find ways to purge that terror from time to time. Mm-hmm. So on a very primal level, I think these movies probably speak to that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's such an interesting because horror fans, you know, I found are the most loyal of all fans and they really have this deep love for it and it's it's funny to have this this genre that can get into gore and you know, cannibalism and all those crazy things but then you meet the people who love it and they're the kindest, sweetest people and they just want to connect to other horror fans and I find that so I love horror for that reason as well it's like not only is the movies are great that's great but then you get the fans on top of the who are also great and like this kind of bonus thing and I think because I just went to the rated R speakeasy that Graham Skipper put on so it's you know Fangoria and Shudder put it together and it, just meeting anybody and you could just say like hey what's your favorite horror movie and then you have a conversation and it's everybody feels very open and welcoming and it's a very nice community yeah I love the idea and execution as it were of this the, the community of horror because it is a very communal genre and I think that you know when the world at large talks about cult movies what they don't realize is that's literally what it means mm-hmm. like the cult of the movie is the community that surrounds it yeah and we have this very uh powerful genre community uh and I think, you know, just because of the, the the mission statement of this show and sort of the exploration of queer identity in horror, there does often seem to be a draw into the genre because for a long time, this was the solace. It was outsiders uh, were drawn to this cinema because it is, by definition, a genre of otherness. Yeah. But as we grow, we kind of find each other. Mm-hmm. And that's where the strength comes. And there's something kind of like really beautiful about the horror community in that I've, way, too. I feel the exact same way. And I, I think you know, I've always been drawn to the outsiders and the underdogs. And that's who I want to hang out with. And I feel like because you're somebody who understand what it's like to be excluded, then you make work extra hard to make sure everybody feels included. And I think that that's part of what it is as well. Absolutely. So let's dig a little bit back into the history. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you are a filmmaker and you're talking about horror movies and this is your life, like you host <laughs> a show. But that has to start somewhere. When you were growing up, like when when did this all begin? Like when did you decide, like, I love movies? And what was the path from being a fan to wanting to make this your life? So um, I grew up in Las Vegas and uh, my family are, have always been into movies. We went to movies a lot. And then horror was something where uh, I was really scared as a little kid a lot. And my best friend Ryan, when I was growing up, was a boy and like he... The first horror movie I can remember watching that really terrified me was Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. I hadn't seen the original. It was just Part 2. And We're it, very familiar with it here on the show. Yes, I'm sure you are. <laughs> um, and, it, I, you know, it, it scared the living fuck out of me, like just horribly. You know, I can remember going to sleep thinking Freddie was going to get me, like physically trembling and shaking. I was so terrified. And this went on for like weeks. I had nightmares. Mm-hmm. And I was he was always the one that like I didn't I was not OK with. And then somehow in junior high that kind of there was this flip where like I watched the original Nightmare on Elm Street and I was like holy wow this is great right and you know the character of Nancy was somebody who was so badass and so like just figured it all out and didn't need any help and and, and the, the effects are so great and 
you know, Tina's death in Nightmare on Elm Street is my favorite death in horror cinema, period. Oh, like, it's, it's just shocking. Yeah. Incredible. Um, so it was it was Nightmare on Elm Street and Pet Cemetery and Hellraiser in high school. And like I watched those three a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I moved to so I went to UC Irvine for college where I met Marion Kerr, who was the original co-host for Horror Movie Survival Guide. And when I met her, she had never seen a horror movie ever anything and I was like wow okay we have a blank slate here what do we start with we I said okay we're gonna watch Nightmare on Elm Street if you don't like it we don't have to watch anything else but we watched it and she loved it and she loved it for the exact same reasons I did she's like Nancy's amazing yeah so I want to ask about that because it's interesting because as we know Nightmare 2 uh, has gone sort of onto this legendary status mm-hmm. of being the the, the homoerotic right. it's one of the only uh, nightmare movies that is male led right? Uh, and in fact you Mark Patton, who plays Jesse in that movie, had kind of a long and uh, storied history, and in, there's a documentary about it coming out here soon called Scream Queen. Oh, cool! Uh, that uh, I, you know, I urged Dead for Filth listeners to seek out. Uh, but you know, what I'm interested in is you saw that movie, yes. and Freddy terrified you, yes. But you know, when you were talking about then discovering the original, right? One of the very first things that you bring up is just like how you connect with Nancy and I'm just curious like because Nancy is such a force of nature mm-hmm. and a strong female character uh, it, it's it, we see this now in this discussion of the of the media uh, when superhero movies come out and the idea that like you know girls want to see heroes too right. for the longest time I feel like the the female heroes in movies were in horror movies mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if like that really helped make the turnaround for Freddie for you was seeing Nancy uh, I don't know because you know for me I've always kind of connected with the character regardless of what they look like like you sure. know so i had nancy in one hand but then i also have lewis from pet cemetery in the other hand who i also just loved right and so you know and then you you have you have julia from hellraiser and kirstie and they're kind of doing their own thing and it it doesn't it never really entered my mind i guess like i always just and i you know jesse from nightmare 2 like he's just kind of a strange character and you know as a kid it wasn't I didn't really even think about him it was just about okay there's these like Freddy dogs and like the pool's on fire oh my god and like those kind of things where like my brain had never conceived a pool could be on fire right you know like that kind of stuff um so it was just really about I guess the actor and the portrayal of of the character um so, you know, for me, because I, I enjoy when there are final boys and I and right. I, I will get behind a final boy just as much like Randy from Scream, Radish from Final Exam, as as everyone knows, is like my obsession, like <laughs> favorite horror character. Um, but it, so so with with Marion, so she, she, she you know, when, when she saw Nancy, she said, I was like, is, is being a final girl a thing? Is this a thing? Is this something that's a trope? And I was like, yeah. So she said, OK, well, let's watch as many horror movies as possible because then we'll we'll know how to survive. Right. That was the the thing behind it. So our senior year of uh, at UC Irvine, we watched every horror movie in the horror movie section of our local video store, Gold Star Video. And it was just a random selection. So there's, you know, it's all over the map of what we saw. And sometimes, and you know, when we, when you, we, we, so the the podcast that we, and eventually was like going back through this notebook and rewatching the movies. And then there was these movies that just like, like The Shining's not in it and The Omen's not in it. And it's just these random movies because that's just what they had at the video store. Right. So the podcast was actually born out of a very real activity yeah. that you and your friend were just doing 
at college. Yeah, we just really spent our entire senior year watching horror movies and writing notes about it. So you kept a notebook, mm-hmm. and the notebook has then become the basis for... This podcast. This podcast. You know what I love about it is it's sort of uh, something that you would see in a Stephen King novel. Like the bo- <gasps> That's the best compliment you could ever <laughs> give me, Michael. Oh, but, my goodness. But no, it's true. It's like, you know, when you see something, uh, read a Stephen King book, it's all about sort of that nostalgia and the activities that you do with friends and then coming back together and yeah. rediscovering that, whether it is the Losers Club and It mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, the boys from The Body, uh, which would be Stand By Me. Right. Uh, and, and sort of that thing like this was our childhood connection but like now as adults we've we've brought it back and it's got this whole new life yeah so i love the idea that you're like we're going to rent all these movies and we're going to watch them but you know we're also going to take notes yes uh and really who were those notes Mm -hmm. for little did you know those notes were for you just in the future yeah well i guess we had always thought it would be something like we we that's the reason we were so gung-ho about it it's like we're going to turn this into something and it was going to be a book it's going to be you know uh, a movie it's going to be whatever it will be and this was just kind of what it turned out to be because so what happened was um so terry gamble who is another friend of mine who i've known since uh so i spent my junior year of college abroad in england and uh, i met her there but she's american and so what she was working for a company that was looking for podcasts and like specifically horror podcasts right and she was like hey i know some people who might be just a cup of tea and so like kind of born out of this kind of thing and i was like well i'd always kind of wanted to do something with it this is an opportunity. Let's give it a try. And it was so much fun to go through the movies and watch them again. And some of them, you know, I, I remember thinking about them one way, but then I watched them as an adult now. You know, I was an adult then, but like right. an older adult and be like, oh, OK, I, under- I get it now. Um, or, I de- or I don't understand it. You know, like the things I, I used to like and now I don't like and, and seeing that. So that's interesting because uh, I think about this often is sometimes the movies that we were really invested in. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, nostalgia is a powerful master, and the, and, and the pivotal movies will always be the pivotal movies. Right. But then there are other movies that you find yourself sort of attached to that later, when you revisit, they don't feel the same. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like revisiting an old relationship or something, <laughs> in a way. And... Uh, I have said in the past, like, you know, when when guests return, the first question, the first question when you're on the first time is why horror? But if you were to ever come back, Uh the the second first question is actually a question I'm about to ask you because it relates to this idea. Okay, And it's how has your relationship with horror changed? Because I think how your relationship with horror changes affects how you integrate and view those films. Um. I think my my love of horror has only grown deeper. I feel like it's even it's always been a complete place of joy for me. Like mm-hmm. the joy I get from a horror movie is weird. You know, it's just it's it's something that delights me, you know, it's something that I I I find it so appealing and so you know going to doing this podcast and getting to talk to my best friends about horror and having people be interested in what I have to say is a beyond a dream like what is that that's incredible and I you know I think that that's something that's always been so cool about it is that my enthusiasm is what people respond to and it's so genuine right that I you know you want to talk to me about Stephen King oh my god that makes me so happy <laughs> let's talk about Stephen King let's talk about Texas Chance of Massacre like those things are are what I'm so happy about and you know I remember going to my first Fangoria convention with Marion and you know, we were in college and it was like 25 bucks to get in. And we were like, oh, OK, it's a lot. But we scraped it up and we went and we didn't know that it was like an autograph thing that like you have to pay for all the stuff. And then we're like, oh, no, we can't really do anything. So we just kind of walked around all day. But it was 
so fun. And, you know, and, and the thing that people always was like, what are you girls doing here? Like, we look so normal, but we're so demented. And I think that, you know, finding this community then and then, you know, because I, I, when I came to L.A. like uh, in 2001, the idea was to become like a scream queen. Like I wanted to be Heather Langenkamp. Like I wanted to right. do those things. And so I I got in with uh, Full Moon for a brief period of time. So mm-hmm. I was in a movie called Crips with the Z Crypts. So like Tales from the Crypt, but with Crypts with yes, a Z. With a Z. Yeah, so yeah. it was like an urban, an urban horror film. Uh-huh. And I was really excited because I got to be, uh, they had created a new monster, a Zuvembi, which was like a half zombie, half vampire. Okay, could you say that again for me? A Zuvembi. Okay, I just didn't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I was really excited because I got to go through makeup. and like mm-hmm. they did, But it was like a couple of hours of makeup and they did prosthetics on my fingers. So I, they're real, they, so they were elongated so I couldn't do anything right like I couldn't read I couldn't eat I couldn't go to the bathroom like it was just kind of bananas but I was still like incredibly excited and so we shot the movie uh but the woman who uh there were some problems with the woman who I was supposed to be like a slave to her and there was problems with her so my scenes got really cut and then when I had everybody over to watch the movie I was like hey you guys it's my first like horror movie I'm so excited and it was literally like me oh I'm right there and then I was gone. Oh, no. And I was like, oh, no, I got cut out. And I was very sad about that. But then I went on to do Delta Delta Die. Yes, which stars a very dear friend of mine, <gasps> Tiffany Shepes. Miss Tiffany Shepes. Who, yeah. Yes, we were, in, we were in that film together, but we didn't have any scenes together. Right. Um, but I was beyond excited. I got to play a young Brink Stevens. Julie Strain is in the film. And I got to be covered in a bucket of blood, which was like all, one of the things I wanted to do in my lifetime. Yeah, and Delta Delta got, Die kind of went on to be like one of those blockbuster rentals. Like mm-hmm. it like was very disseminated to many many rental stores across America. So. Yeah, and I uh, my first fan letter I ever got was for Delta Delta Die. It was somebody in Poland, and it like blew my mind. And I was oh. like, "There's someone in Poland." watching Delta Delta Die. Well, again, it speaks to the power of community of horror movies mm. because I think no one is as passionate about movies as horror fans because they will seek out all sorts of different titles. Mm-hmm. And that's I, I remember like the first few conventions I did having a conversation with someone and the idea that if you make a movie, somewhere in the world it will be someone's favorite movie. I've never thought about that like that. Yeah, and so it's sort of like... You make the movie for that one person, yeah. and maybe someday that one person is two, those two people are ten, those ten are a hundred, et cetera. But as long as you make the art for that one person, yeah. then you did your job. Yeah. So that guy in Poland. All right. Yeah, yeah. That's, I like that way. It's a good way to think about it. Rock no, and- I just, I, you know, being covered in a bucket of blood uh, and not, not having to do it myself, like to have like, because I could do that myself, right? But like, you know, sure. like to have it like on film in a movie and they wanted me to feel like to like it because I was like, am I horrified or do I like it? They're like, no, you kind of like it. And I'm like, all right, let's rock this. Let's do this. And I feel so, like you would like it. I, yeah, I would. And I did. <laughs> I was delighted. Although it was the stickiest mess I have ever been in. It's like corn syrup and Diet Coke and like it's just everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I don't think people realize how uh, gross fake blood actually can be. But but also also I was like oh this is great because then I like I, you know in the shower it looks like psycho it's just like this horrible bloody mess <laughs> like afterwards and I was like this is kind of great um, so I got to do that um, I did not take my clothes off although I could have gotten an extra fifty bucks a day if I had oh. I chose not to so there's this there's a scene by a pool and there's three people who go to skidded dipping and then there's me sitting on the side of the pool fully clothed so I'm a little bit of a of a party pooper but. 
But in that scene, then you would stick out. Yes. Which, you know, isn't that the whole point of a, a, a scene? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I, my, I was excited because my, uh, it's supposed to be a flashback. So our bit was set in the 80s. So I got to like rock my like camp counselor Friday the 13th shirt and my tab and be very 80s. So uh, you moved here. You started doing these full moon movies. Uh, obviously, it, you know, some of them get some traction. Mm-hmm. Uh was that what you went to school for? Was to be an actor? Yes. Or? So I, um, I've studied acting since I was a little kid. I was in a, a wonderful children's theater group in Las Vegas called the Rainbow Company growing up, mm-hmm. um, and so from I was in it from when I was ten to when I was eighteen, and it was basically an ensemble where you. Uh, audition for the shows that you do through the season. If you don't get in the show, then you do the backstage work. Right. So you do lighting or you do sound or you do stage management, but they're serious about it. Like I learned how to be a stage manager at like 12 years old and like learned how to do that stuff and how to show up on time and, you know, learn my lines and really respect the craft of it. And it was something that was such a cool way because I felt like when I got to LA, I felt like I was light years ahead of a lot of people just from that, just from that childhood thing. And so right. then I went to a performing arts high school in Las Vegas and then went to college for drama and film. So it was a study of film, not filmmaking. So a lot of watching films and then writing about them. Uh, I was fascinated when you were talking about going to the Fangoria conventions. One of the things that you said was that people were like, what are you girls doing here? You mm-hmm. look so normal, whatever. And that that does come up every so often. Uh, when I, I talk to women who are very invested in the genre is sort of this like perception amongst some mm-hmm. that girls don't like horror. Have you run against that a lot over the course of your career? I, w- I would say it's starting to change now. Yeah. I feel like I, I run into a lot of girls who like horror now, but in the beginning, no. It was men completely, and then that was part of why we stuck out, is like not only are we girls, we're normal-looking girls, because I feel like there's this kind of perception, if you like horror, you have to be goth, you have to be dark, you have to wear black and look angry and sad. And that's not necessarily true. Like If you look at a picture of me or a picture of Mary, and you're like, they're like the most wholesome girls you'll ever see. And yet... I would say you're dressed in primary colors. Yes. And yet I love gore like you wouldn't believe, you know? I just... But but the reason I love gore is because I love the artistry of it and knowing that someone had to create that effect Mm -hmm. and and how, you know, like uh, we just did uh, The Thing pretty recently on the podcast and like the the effects for The Thing, Rob Oteen, like, wow, so creative. And like, that's the stuff that really gets me all jacked up. I go, wow, look at it go. So cool. So you are more drawn by just the the hows and whys of making it happen. Like you you love that artistry, Mm -hmm. but then you also buy into the fantasy, of course. Sure. Uh, no, I think that's really interesting. So you're doing these movies with Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously at some point you uh, kind of start shifting gears. And uh, I'm, I want to talk to you a little bit about Out of Print because okay. it really, you know, made an impact on the on the circuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's a real powerful uh, documentary if you are a fan of movies, because you talk about going to the video store mm-hmm. and like picking out, you know, the, the random titles. But there is a generation of people and continues to be a generation of people that our discovery of films also came from our local movie theater. Mm-hmm. Not the multiplex at the mall or whatever, but, you know, the, the small Rialtos or, you know, the, the places like the New Beverly, right. uh, the Music Box in Chicago. Uh, you know, I'm just I'm shouting out all these, like, <laughs> the Hollywood Theater in Pittsburgh. Hello, everyone. Um, so tell me how you go from, you know, being a 
a scream queen Mm -hmm. of sorts Mm -hmm. to a documentary all about film theater preservation. Yeah, it's kind of an odd path, isn't it? Yeah. Um, What happened was, so in Las Vegas... There was no, we had no revival cinema. It doesn't, it didn't exist. We mm-hmm. just had multiplexes. And so I had no idea that that was a thing. And then I moved to LA and I found a new Beverly calendar and like saw, you know, and my groo- groovy is my aesthetic, you know? Right. And so if you look like you're in the sixties or seventies, like you're my thing. And that calendar was like, oh my goodness. And then when I got there, I was like, oh my God, like this is, this is my place. This is what I want. And I, and I, the thing that I loved about it so much was that it was it's so small and, you know, kind of run down and but not, you know, and not in a it's not gross, but it just doesn't feel clean in that kind of because I find like a movie theater like the Arclight, like I find it quite sterile. And I right. and I, and that's, you know, there's the other extreme of how you can go with the movie theater. And this is kind of just feels cozy and small. And the fact that there were these people who wanted to come out and see the first uh, double feature I saw at the New Beverly was Gremlins and Goonies. And there was these like hardcore Corey Feldman fans there who were just going bananas every time he came on screen. And I was like, this is great. There's other people like me. This is amazing. Um, And I just loved the place so much. And and so I went there for a long time and asked Sherman Torgan, the guy who worked there, who was the, um, the, the owner and the guy who um, started the New Beverly, Sherman, um, and he, I just asked him for a job every time. I was like, I have to work here. This is where I want to work. Like, and just hounded and hounded and hounded until he finally caved in. I was like, okay, give you a shift. And then, you know, once I started, I was like, why did I not hire you five years ago? Because like, it's just, I was so enthusiastic. Everything was like being in a candy store, just so happy to be there. And then um, we started having guest programmers come. So it started with Edgar Wright did a series and then Eli Roth and Joe Dante and Diablo Cody and Jason Reitman and on and on and on and all these wonderful people. And it was a thing where like not only am I getting, you know, a post film school education where I can watch any movie I want, you know, any night of the week. But it's also now I'm meeting all of these incredible people and personally getting to interview them and ask them about their story and about where, you know, how they started and about this film. And so it just became this incredible environment and to be now be surrounded by everybody who was just like me, everybody who just like loved cinema. And that's what the bottom line was. It wasn't about money and it wasn't about, you know, fame and just like, it's just about these movies. Like let's watch these movies and be excited together. Well, and I remember from that particular era of the new Bev uh, actor and someone uh, we both uh, know, Noah Segan. Yeah. Used to frequently on social media say, uh, here's what's playing at church tonight. Yes. The idea of uh, this was movie. These movies were a place of, of, again, it comes back to the idea of community, Mm -hmm. that communal gathering and like sort of worshiping at the altar of celluloid. Like yes. this is what brings us together and the, the spirit of this. And so I, I like that you said that it was a post film school education, but your professors are literally people like the director of Shaun of the Dead yeah. or the creator of Gremlins uh-huh. coming in and showing the movies that made them want to make movies. Yes. And uh, I do think for places, as you said, like Las Vegas, that don't have these revival houses or these single screen theaters or have that legacy. There is something that's a little lost in the idea that going to the movies at a place like that is not just going to the movies. Yes. It is a celebration of the art of cinema. And unfortunately, as just happens with the March of Time, as, as powerful as those spots are and, uh, and meaningful as they are in the hearts of filmmakers and film fans, 
the the swath of them across the nation have slowly been shuttering and closing yes. because it is an expensive world. And is that what drove you to create out of print? Because I'm sure you were watching and listening to these people long before you were like, ah, a documentary is to be made. Yeah, yeah. no, I never, it never really crossed my mind. I mean, it was always kind of floating nebulously in the background, like this is an amazing scene and we should be documenting it. But I never took it seriously. But then we... Um, Got a letter from one of the studios that said they were going to stop making 35 millimeter prints. Right. And like that was just going to be the end of it. And I freaked out because I was like, this is all the New Beverly shows. If this, this, if they don't have them, like I look 10 years in the future, 20 years in the future, like what's going to happen? This film place is going to be dying. And it really bothered me that it was done so sneakily I guess you know I feel like the studios wanted to make this transition from 35 millimeter to DCP as quietly as possible and not you know not say anything about it and I was like this is a big this is a big thing because 35 millimeters what film has always been on is a preservation medium and now you're moving you know when when the transition happened in 2012 like this digital didn't look as good and it will look just right. as good but it didn't at the time well one of the things I wanted to ask you about and since you're bringing it up now uh, just while we're on the topic is you know beyond the idea of preserving these these revival houses mm-hmm. and these single screen indie theaters uh, I know that you are an advocate for 35 millimeter. Yes. And uh, which, by the way, out of print has 35 millimeter print struck, which you, I'm sure, are very excited about. Uh, yes. And uh, just last week, uh, it's now going to be held in the Academy. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to ask, you know, obviously beyond uh, historical reasons, mm-hmm. w- why advocate for 35? And I'm asking in a devil's advocate way, because of sure, course sure. I'm a fan of 35 as well. But like right. there, are, there is probably a generation of kids who digital is what they grew up with. So right. they don't maybe know. Uh, it's mainly, you know, aesthetically, I like it better. Yeah. But it's also mainly just because it's some you it's preservation. Yeah. You know, you think about how fast digital upgrades and you know if you then how do you preserve that and you know how if a file is corrupted it's gone and this kind of thing and if you have 35 millimeter prints in a place where there's the right climate and it's everything's good then it's going to last you can still play movies from the beginning of cinema now on the same thing that's amazing you know um so it's just more about not i understand that 35 millimeter is kind of becoming obsolete. I understand that. And I understood right. that going into making the film. It was never, uh, you know, only do 35. I I will I embrace both. But the, right. the thing is, just please don't forget there's this beautiful thing and don't don't forget it and don't let it die. And don't, you know, like it just, right. you know, it's like any any sort of medium. But it was also this thing where every time you switch mediums, you lose films yeah you know you switch from dv you know dvd to vhs to dvd you lose films in there dvd to blu-ray you lose films that never going to get transferred so what about these films they just go away forever and that like those the thought of that breaks my heart like i just i'm i feel so passionately about it like thinking about a print that will never be seen again or thinking about a theater that's closing because right. they can't make it like those are the things that break my heart well then that ties it back around not just from the 35 35- advocacy but then to this whole reason to make the documentary Mm -hmm. you said you're there you get this letter from the studios they're like we're done making these and and so then you are seeing the idea that maybe the theater's in peril yes 
And so I, it was really just to, so I, I started a petition to kind of raise awareness. And that's all I wanted to do is say like, hey, you guys, just so you know, this is happening because I don't think anybody knows. And then it kind of went very big. And I was like, OK, well, then there's interest in this. And let me explore this. And let me I just wanted to it was kind of the film was a marker in this period in cinema history. Where I go, look, this transition's happening. Nobody's saying anything about it. Let me say something about it, you know. And so Keanu Reeves also did a film side by side, which is about this kind of transition as well. But his was more of the filmmaking aspect, what you're filming on and mine's more kind of exhibition, what you're showing on. Right. Um, Because because out of print uh, to the world at large and to you is is personally a love letter to a particular theater. Right. But. It, it also speaks to a greater issue for a lot of theaters. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it had a universal connector because there are people in New York City or Chicago or London or, you know, Wales or mm-hmm. wherever that are not ever going to go to the New Beverly, but they have their theater. Right. And if you highlight this this issue and say, you know, this thing that is important to you that's what makes the documentary like amazing. But then, so you set out to to do this, and th- I'm just thinking of all the people mm-hmm. who share this passion that you have that mm-hmm. you got to sit down and talk yeah. to. I mean, it's an am- an amazing array of filmmakers. And was there anyone when you were sitting down that you were like overly intimidated to talk to? Uh, yes, uh, Mark Romanek was. In- uh, he's so nice, and he's so cr- so incredibly talented, and like he's so articulate. He never says um or uh or any like there's just a full thought that just comes right out in this as if it was written down. But it's not. And he just so I don't know how to put it in no words, but like he I was like I was a little nervous about him. And and he was the only director who came over and like looked at the shot and was like, okay, mm, let's move this, you know, and kind of like and and I thank God he did, you know, because the shot is beautiful. But I guess everybody I knew. Everybody else I knew kind of, you know, like I knew well, like I had done several Q&As with them. Like I felt like we were friendly enough, like it's not an intimidation thing. Right. But Mark Romanek, I had only met once or twice. We had done a uh, screening of Never Let Me Go, which is an incredible film. And um, so, yeah. So then I was like, oh, wow. okay, this is kind of a huge (laughs) thing. Uh, But he turned out, you know, the interview was great and he was very kind and it turned out wonderful. Um, It was, yeah, so cool. And the cool thing about it was so I, I started I kickstarted it and I, I raised eighty thousand dollars in 30 days and the amazing thing about out of print is that i made a film and i learned how to make a film while making a film like i'd never made a film before so i learned how to do everything and i and i got to ask questions from every crew member like why what do you think how should we do it let's try it this way and really make and you know it felt if i realized how strange it is to be like, oh, this is my film because it's so many people's films. Right. So many people made this film together. Um, and then I learned how to, you know, strike a 35 millimeter print of it. And because we shot half on 30, 35 and half on digital and have this side by side shot in the film that shows you exactly what the difference is. And Ryan Johnson, thank God, was, you know, did a kind of, you know, was explaining how it was working. And uh, and then I got to, you know, figure out how you distribute it. And, you know, it played around the world. It really did. And it played in the oldest movie theater in the U.S., in Canada, in the world, which is in Denmark. And it was playing at the exact movie theaters it should play at. And it was the most delightful thing. And I got to tour around with it some. It played at some university and it played at Wellesley and Amherst and all these places. And then I got to speak to film students about it. And that was incredible because 
the, these film students didn't know what 35 was period just right. never had thought about it and we got to go into the production booth and look at it and be like look this is how you watch a movie and it just blows their minds so that's something that you can introduce film to somebody like right. that's pretty awesome yeah so not only was it a love letter but it was an introduction like mm -hmm. here's why this is important now uh, I have worked with a lot of documentary filmmakers over the course of my career and one thing I know is that documentaries are not a quick process. No. How many years did it take you to, to put this together? From Kickstarter to final cut was one year. One year. Uh, so it was, you know, the because with the documentary, a lot of it's made in the editing room. So there's right. a lot of this editing process of how do you, what story are you telling? And, you know, and of course, like any filmmaker, I think, you know, I look at the film now and it's a whole, I, I wish I'd made a different film, you know, right. like I wish I had skewed it in a different way, but that's just now it's, and especially with 35 millimeter, you have a print. Now that's the film. You mm -hmm. don't get to mess with like, you know, digital, you can kind of endlessly monkey with it with film. It's like, no, this is it. This is your film. Um, you know, and it was such a, it's such a strange thing because, you know, right as I finished the film, um, I was fired from the new Beverly. And then now I have this film of this place that I don't want to promote anymore and to watch the film is incredibly painful. Right. So it turned this kind of moment that should have been this like very triumphant moment, like I'm touring with the film and it's amazing, into this very kind of torturous process. And so very, very odd. But, you know, I got over it by thinking like this film is about a broader thing. It is about the New Beverly, but it also is about all of these cinemas around the world. Well, to put it then to put a cap on that story, because like I, uh, as you're saying, it was a personal journey for you, and some of it was truly amazing, and some of it, unfortunately, was not. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I really liked about what you're saying about the aftermath of creating out a print and taking it to the world is this movie could be utilized to teach people something about film. Um, and it actually literally is. Uh, I There's a professor at Emerson that her first year incoming film students, right. this, out of print's the first thing she shows them. To just be like, just so you know, let's talk about cinema and film. And right. like, wow. Well, so here's the question. People are learning from your movie. Uh-huh. What did you learn from your movie? Ooh, what did I learn? Um, I learned that filmmaking is a very tough process i saw the kind of other side of the hollywood coin you know you see i saw you know the very kind of glitzy glamour side and everything's peaches and cream and then i also saw the horrible kind of backstabbing awful side of it which i you know so there was this duality of how do i feel about filmmaking because i see you know filmmaking is you make a film but then there's also this kind of all the stuff that goes with it and it's so and it's such a, a long process and you have to really be passionate about it now I'm lucky with this film because I made it and I own it in, in completely like I did I never had to have a producer tell me what to do or have anybody you know it was my vision entirely and the, that's incredible but but I guess I learned that it it does affect everybody differently like everybody kind of sees a different film like right. no matter what you know because a lot of people watch the film who know me personally and they're like yeah it's julia in film form like <laughs> it looks like you you know with all these groovy snipes and all this kind of stuff you know and then there's people who see it and see something totally different and so it's interesting that what the and, and also people see it and they email me now and they're like oh it's so great i'm gonna go to the new beverly and now i'm like great you right. know like 
go for the, you know, and I always tell them, you know, they show 35 millimeter, you'll have a good time, go ahead and go. But I haven't been there since 2014. So like, I have no concept of what it is now. Right. So it's this odd, odd disconnect that now people, people will see this movie and this will always be this period in time of the new Beverly captured forever, but that period's gone. So like it will continue to have this time capsule kind of quality about it. Right. Well, and I think this is the thing too, that people don't always realize for the people for culture movies are in a way a cultural yearbook but for the people who make them even more so because it's a moment in time and sometimes we culturally identify things as as a forever moment that did have an end like Mm -hmm. imagine being elizabeth taylor and people only wanting to talk to you about the movies you made with Richard Burton. Right. Okay, cool. Like, yes, they made some great movies together, but that's also someone she divorced twice. So <laughs> it's like there is always going to be that tinge of the personal, mm-hmm. but it's it's also awesome to have affected culture in the way that, you know, even though you parted ways with the new Beverly, when people think of that place, they think of you because ultimately, isn't that like, I don't want to say the best revenge, but it is it is the best uh, it is the best scenario that your movie about the power of a place like that is now forever intertwined with its history. So you've made that mark. And that's really cool. It, it, even if it's bittersweet, mm-hmm. I would understand. But um, yeah, I'm thank just, you. That's a kind way to put it. You know, it's it's hard. To, it's, it's a hard thing to wrestle with and to kind of put into. Yeah. Maybe the new Beverly is Mm -hmm. your Richard Burton. Am I going to divorce it twice? I can't imagine ever going back. (laughs) I don't know. Well, I mean, maybe maybe you can have the uh, Hepburn Tracy of it all. Oh, yes, maybe. You know, and you always think about like, I, I was thinking about like, I could do the alternate version. What if I did like the crazy version? I don't know. You know, like, <laughs> just go go with it. So, um, you know, the movie comes out. Uh, you continue on into to the world. Uh, then you and I met after you were done with Out of Print. Uh, Julia and I actually have a really kind of cool for horror nerd uh, origin story uh, because we met. Working for Stuart Gordon. Yay, Stuart Gordon. Yeah. Um, that, I remember, I, well, because I had heard of the documentary, but uh, you and I both um, fell into the work of uh, a project that Stuart was doing called Nevermore that uh-huh. he was trying to kickstart, which unfortunately never happened. I'm still so angry about that. That should have made so much money, man. It was... Yeah, but again, I think that um, everything in its time, and I I really, you know, just value that we got to connect. One of the days uh, that I think about is, do you remember we went to that Italian restaurant with Stuart, mm-hmm. and uh, he just sat and was telling us about how he loved Hitchcock mm-hmm. and the movies that he... And so there's something, this, this whole thread of the love letter to the movies, and it, it feels like the theme of this episode, mm-hmm. that we're sitting with this man who is a master of horror and someone that our generation of, of genre fans look up to, listening to him like over eggplant opine and and talk about his dreams and hero worship of the people that he admired. Mm-hmm. It's sort of cyclical and really cool. And I remember th- that really helped me go out and be like, we can all do this mm-hmm. it, because we all have heroes and we all have stuff that we are continuing to aspire to. And yes. there are wins and losses. I mean, like he is a very well-known filmmaker. Mm-hmm. That project didn't necessarily happen, but he's still historic Gordon. So. Yes, and continues to do incredible theater here. Yeah. And, you know, his reanimated the musical was great. And 
and that's the cool thing about it. You know, I guess, you know, the New Beverly, even though I don't have it anymore, I still have so many friendships made from it. Right. And, and can, you know, and I count, I count, you know, I'm, I can say I'm friends with Stuart Gordon. I'm friends with Joe Dante. And, and I, and I, I don't say it in a name droppy way. I say it in a genuine way. And I, and I treat it with the respect it deserves because I know who these people are and what they've done. Like I really listen to what they say because they say incredible things well speaking of joe dante yes and uh kind of bringing you back into the fold of acting oh yes you uh-huh. were in a joe dante movie <laughs> you were in uh burying the x i was uh and you know what's funny is i didn't know that you were in it and i was watching it one night and i'm like holy shit julia's <laughs> in this movie so as someone who uh you had said you went and uh saw goonies and gremlins yeah and all of a sudden, you're yes. in a movie from the director of Gremlins. Uh, I know, I know. And, you know, Gremlins is a movie that looms really large in my legend because uh, before I was into horror, when I was still a scaredy cat kid. So I went to go see Gremlins when it came out in 1984. So I was five years old. Scared me to death. And we I, we got back to the house that night. And for some reason, like, we had gotten locked out of the house. But there was my brother's window was open. And my parents were like, okay, crawl in and, like, go around and let, let us in. And I was like, I can't do it. There's gremlins inside. I'm going to be eaten. <laughs> and so my brother had to, like, go in. And also, gremlins uh, ruined Santa Claus for me. Like, that was... Oh, the the monologue. And I was like, OK, well, there we are. And I told that to Dante and he laughed at me, which was, I think, great. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's so... It's hard for me to parse in my mind that you say like you were in a Joe Dante film. I'm like, yes, I was, you know. And it's also now bittersweet, of course, because my scenes with Anton Yelchin and he, we got to spend an afternoon together shooting, and all we did was talk about film because mm-hmm. he came to the New Beverly all the time and knew me from there. So it was just this kind of hours long film exploration, and I really he was so kind and such a genuine film person, you know, right. and I'm. So grateful I got to not only be in a Joe Dante movie, but also get to personally get to meet and act with Anton Yelchin, which was mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. So I guess maybe the lesson for us to learn on today's episode of Dead for Filth is that life does go on, whatever mm-hmm. that means. But film. Yeah. Forever. Is forever. It is. And I mean, who better to be an emissary of that message than you, Julia? Because that has been, in the time that I've known you, and I think anyone who follows your career, your fight and your message. You have been out here saying, look how important this important this is. This is what we preserve. And it's not just out of print. It's Horror Movie Survival Guide. Mm-hmm. The idea like, you know, I wrote these things in my notebook because they were important to me and now I'm sharing them with you. You just did 100 episodes. Yes, we did. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been wonderful, you know, and it's been, you know, we had Marion was uh, the host for about 75 episodes and now Terry's the host, co-host. And we, so the format's changed slightly. We're still doing movies from the notebook but we've also expanded to do kind of anything now and we so now we can take suggestions and we just did a round of uh, all movies that we've neither of us had seen before which is something new that we've done and she's someone where now it's kind of the cycles repeating where I'm finding this person who's seen nothing and showing her everything and watching her blossom into this gore hound um, <laughs> and you know it, it's just such a fun thing to do and so I, it's been wonderful and you know it's been cool too to listen to your podcast and listen to other you know the other horror podcasts that are all so positive and so kind of welcoming and and triumphant and showing how lovely horror fans are and horror actors and actresses and directors you know it's like i listened to your kelly maroney episode uh we know kelly and she's incredible as well and like what a fucking sweetheart man you know and like to think of someone like she's known for 
you know, Night of the Comet and these kind of leaders, but she's just a wonderful person. So nice. Yeah. Uh, well, this is a, a good portion of the show to ask you a question that I do tend to ask every mm. guest. And since you said you've recently watched things that you hadn't seen, uh, because movies are such a motivating factor in your life, uh, what have you seen recently that you're liking that inspires you? And, uh, you know, just what's what's lighting a fire? Well, well, I, we just watched for the podcast. We just watched The Ritual. Uh, oh, the Netflix movie. The Netflix movie. Yeah, with the creepy, like, the antler monster. Amazing monster. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that movie was great. It was so intense and so creative. And, this I mean, this monster is one of the most beautiful monsters I've ever seen. I take creature design very seriously. And, like, this one, incredible. And um, when we went to the Rated R Speakeasy, they had that monster there, like, the the, the prosthetic. He was hanging out drinking he was, a beer. Yeah, hanging yeah. out with uh, light-up eyes. Uh, so <laughs> that one caught me off guard. That one, I thought that was um, really, really cool. Uh, we're going to do an episode on The Quiet Ones, which I also enjoyed, which is the Hammer Horror doing their new round of oh, stuff. Oh, with Sam, Sam Claflin. Claflin. Oh. Yeah, he's cute. Oh, my God, Sam Claflin. <laughs> uh, you know, I love modern Hammer. I don't think it gets enough love because obviously when we think of Hammer, we think of the Christopher Lee era, right. you know, Ingrid Pitt. But uh, The Quiet Ones, Wakewood, I really liked. Mm-hmm. Um, Woman in Black was good. Woman in Black was good. And The Lodge is coming. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's the new one uh, that they produced from uh, the directors of Goodnight Mommy. Oh, nice. Yeah. Which I saw at the now dearly departed Cine family. Oh, Cine family. Yeah, this woman next to me cried for like half the movie because she was so terrified, which of course makes me remember the movie forever. So. Yeah, yeah. And that's, the, you know, that's the thing about it. Like, I, you know, I told you I saw it so many times and like I realized after a while, like I'm feeding on fear, just like Pennywise. Like I'm yeah. li- I like all this fear. I'm like, yes, more fear. Um, you are, you are, um the the new mayor of Derry in my heart. <laughs> oh, see? <laughs> Anything Stephen King related in my heart goes bing. Okay, so um, because you're such a Stephen King fan, yes. uh, if you could ask Stephen King just one question, <sighs> right, right, it's heavy, uh, what would it be? Oh, uh, wow. You thought I was going to ask what your favorite book was. That's yeah, too easy. I know that's too easy. Yeah, I don't. I you know I feel like I would be real. I would be real tongue tied. I feel like I'd be. I get real squeaky if I get real excited. Mm-hmm. I feel like I get real squeaky. Um, I feel like it would be hard to ask him a question that no, like everybody asks him the same questions. Like what? Where's your inspiration? Yeah. Why are things creepy? I mean, I guess I could ask him like a specific question about a book. I'm going to. Um, I'm going to Maine. In October, I'm going to do a pilgrimage to Maine. I'm very excited. Oh, to Banger? Yes. So you're going to go see the gates of the Stephen King house. So then what would I ask him? Um, You know, I'd ask him if I could hang out for like a week or something and just like just drink chill be- drink beer what does Stephen King do like right. I, you yeah. know he has his, his mornings where he writes and then the afternoons we can go hang out with the dog or whatever oh uh, Molly yeah the yeah, thing the, of evil yeah um, I don't know I kind of want to know how often he and J.K. Rowling text would that be a waste oh. of a question because they seem to like be like palsy um, yeah maybe asking for like a jam session would be good right yeah. like he can play guitar right I'll bring my ukulele I don't really know how to play it yet but I can figure it out you know I think he'd be fine with it uh, you know who I think is super badass that mm. like does not get brought up enough is Tabitha King. She is badass. Like, I'm a huge Tabitha King fan, and honestly, uh, she's like one of the uh, people I would love to have on this podcast oh. because I love all of her books, and um, 
I uh, just really think, well, also, what a cool fucking family. Yeah. Like, Stephen King, one of the you know, greatest novelists of all time. Tabitha King, a badass novelist. Their sons, yeah. plural, writing novels. Like It's just talent like you can't believe. And the thing is, cause, so I'm in the middle of this. Um, so I was reading The Dark Tower. Uh, I've been a Stephen King fan since I was in junior high, but like I didn't, I'd never tackled The Dark Tower. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And it's so great. But then I stopped um, and I was like, you know what? I want to read everything related to it because there's like 40 books that yeah, are like in the Eyes universe. Of the Dragon, yes. Rose Matter, blah, blah, blah. And blah. I was like, okay, I'm going to read everything related to it before I finish it. So I'm in the middle of that, which is about like I'm about a year in. I got about another year to go. And it's the most fabulous thing I've ever done. I think it's the greatest fantasy epic ever written. Well, the thing yeah. is, is like this is a this is like the a, a literary puzzle that like mm-hmm. I have all these pieces. I don't know where they fit yet. I'm going to find out. They're all going to like come together at some point and uh, I was in grad school when the final book came out and I remember reading it and of course no spoilers because you're not done but like on that like when I hit that last page I just yeah. cried for yeah. like an hour because yeah. like it was years of my life yes. reading these books yes so, yeah I yeah, also yeah. like I wanted to extend it as well like it, yeah. the, reading the Dark Tower is so such an incredible experience it's like oh wait wait I can't finish it I have to like extend yeah. this time period Um, which one are you reading now uh, right now I so I just finished Long Walk which I really really liked um, I'm also reading The Regulators and Dr- Dreamcatcher, which are slogs. Just finished Evil Kings. Also reading Cujo and Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Oh, so you're a multi-book reader. Yeah, I read a lot at a time because I have like one in the car, one in my bag. You know what I really love are Stephen King short stories. I think he's an, a marvelous short story author. And I mean, he is, he is one of the modern masters mm-hmm. of short stories, both in and out of genre. Uh, but... Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I just finished Night uh, Night Shift, which had uh, so I've read Skeleton Crew, um, reading Dream, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, but there was a there's a story in Night, Night Shift. Uh, I know what you need. That was one of like I I've short stories aren't my favorite, and mm-hmm. I, I admit that he's great at it, but they're still I would prefer a novel. Sure, but like this short story was the first one. I was like, whoa, this one. There are sometimes seeds of ideas, though, and I, I'm i going to probably be wrong, but there's a short story in Everything's Eventual, I yeah. think, mm-hmm. about, you know how like when you're at a public bathroom, mm-hmm. I don't know if this happens as much in women's rooms or, or not. It's the graffiti one, the, right? The graffiti one, where people write on the bathroom walls, and you're like, who the fuck is sitting here writing this shit? Yeah. But then Stephen King, in his crazy person mind, is like, what if it's not random teenagers just writing bullshit, but it's code? And like across the country, like people are communicating with each other, this uh-huh. like underground society and they're using bathroom walls. And I was like, what? That's insane. Like, and then like, I just remember putting the book down. I'm like, how dumb bathroom graffiti. And then like three hours later, I was still thinking about it. And I was like, what? That's why he's so genius. Yeah. Like he, we look at bathroom graffiti and go, meh. He looks yeah. at bathroom graffiti and like, what can I do with this? Yeah, he's like, serial killers are communicating with yes. each other using the graffiti in the bathroom stall. What? Uh, but Insomnia, I really, really liked. That was one that kind of came out of nowhere. And I didn't realize how many of his books are set in Derry. And they yeah. all kind of, and Castle Rock, of course. And they all kind of, but, I, and I also love that it's like mixed in nonfiction and fictional towns. Like, oh, Banger exists, but Derry also exists. Yeah. No. And uh, have you read 1123-63? Not yet. All right. It's on, it's, it's waiting for me at home. I got my, like, I have all the books I need to read. They're all sitting there. I just have to like keep going through it yeah uh no spoilers but that one brings together a lot more stuff than you would expect okay interesting uh yeah so uh obviously we went on a stephen king side tangent which we love uh julia what is next for you what are you working on where can people see you next what like you know obviously you've got the podcast on a weekly basis but like what are you scheming and dreaming so i um 
am going to be uh, going to be programming uh, the week leading up to Halloween at the Somerville Theater in um, Somerville, Massachusetts. Uh, so I get to have like six days or something like an incredible amount of time to do programming and it's the week leading up to Halloween which is the week the most amazing week right um so I'm gonna and I'm going out there for that so this is like you know I'm also gonna go to Maine on that trip but uh programming film is still something that I love so much and I think horror movie survival guide is actually plays into that because what am I doing but recommending films to you sure you know and so to me and I think that that's part of what I enjoyed so much in high school when I watched these, you know, like Pet Cemetery, over and over and over. It was showing it to different people. How do different people react to this? I want to watch your reaction during this scene. And so that's always been a joy of mine because to me, you know, watching a film and especially watching a film multiple times, you're doing it because you get this feeling from this film that you enjoy. And then getting to share a feeling with somebody together simultaneously on this journey together, that's really what I love. And so, you know, film programming is what I really, you know, and it, but it's hard because I think, okay, am I a film programmer? Am I a director? Am I an actress? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm all of it, you know? Yeah, so why not all? Why, yeah. Why does there have to be, you know, and I, and I, I still would like to make it films, but I, you know, I feel, do I want to do another documentary? Do I want, I have some scripts that I'm writing, you know, do I want to do these things? And I, I don't know yet, you know, and that's kind of the fun of it is like, I could, all these doors are kind of open and I can go anywhere I like. And so I've kind of been dabbling in everything and then getting into the podcasting thing has been a different, a different experience. And now, you know, because people all over the world are listening and that's something that's very different as well and getting people's feedback. And, and it's really fun to talk to people on Twitter and like, what do you do think about this film? And getting feedback is, is really cool. And I, you know, I don't know, we're going to start having guests on the podcast. So like we're kind of going to start to evolve into a different kind of bigger thing, but we want to grow it into something because I love what talking about horror movies with Terry and she loves talking about horror movies with me and we're best friends and we're like partners in crime together. So why not conquer the world with it? You know, and I don't know where it'll go, but I just know we're both so passionate, enthusiastic about it that it's going to go somewhere, you know? Well, I've always felt that your passion was infectious and you're doing such great things for the community <laughs> Thank and you. for film in general. Well, uh, it's just something, you know, it's just a genuine love. And I, I, it's, and I'm sure to some people it's probably uh, overbearing and obnoxious, but in my world, it's wonderful. And that's what I love. There's nothing I love more than just watch someone be excited about something. And Well, you do it well. And I think that our community is better for it. Uh, so keep doing you. Uh, thank you. Julia, thank you so much for being on the show today. Where can people find you? So uh, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram um, under Julia Marchesi, Julia C. Marchesi or uh, Horror Movie Survival Guide. And I'm there to talk out, man. Let's, you know, let you let's talk about acting or directing or film programming or anything you want to talk about. Freddy Krueger, Stephen King. Please talk to me about Stephen King because holy fuck, I love to talk about Stephen King. <laughs> Stephen King, if you're listening, please, please tweet. Julia. <sighs> Stephen King, if you're listening, I love you. <laughs> I know you're married to Tabitha, but let's work it out. Well, I mean, you guys can talk it out while, while Tabitha is <laughs> here on the show. Um, oh, okay, good. Uh, all right, Julia, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much, Michael. You're so awesome. You, you're the superstar. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.